Joseph didn't want to be in the pit. The problem is we have this desire to not actually be in the pit. That if we live good enough, better enough, strong enough, faithful enough, have the best imagination possible, live with the most faith possible, know all the answers about who God actually is, somehow we're not going to end up in a pit. But who was the hero of the story and where did he end up? The pit! All right, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Genesis, and you have a page to take notes as well. And, um, you know, it's, it's always fun to try to take what would probably be like 10 sermons if I was preaching <laughs> and put it into one message. So I was informed yesterday by Sarah that there are sleeping bags available upstairs for the yard sale. And so we'll just, we'll just camp. We'll just camp here. I have a pillow. We'll just, right, pillow. Oh, I have a pillow. She prepared. <laughs> oh, oh, here we go. I like it. Joseph is stripped of his cloak and you're stripped of your pillow. This is getting biblical. I like it. All right. So Genesis, today we're reviewing lesson 10. Lesson 10. And, and then we're going to be reading through, going through ch chapters 35 through 40. Um, as we begin, I would like to ask you two questions. You can write them down. You can just let them hover in your brain and think about it. Um, but I'm going to ask you a couple of questions just to think about. How does God work in our lives? Does he work quickly? Does he work over time? Or both? <laughs> How does God work in our lives? Quickly over time or both? And the second thing to think about, is there a time when you've thought that there is no hope anymore? That this person, that area of your life, this situation, a health issue, relationship, it's just, it's just too far gone. It's too exhausting. Maybe you're just too tired to even consider that God's actually working. So I want you to have those questions kind of, like I said, hovering over, over you. And I wanna move into this thought here tonight as we go through these chapters. And I wanna to suggest to you that our tendency to think there's no way or God won't, it's not that he can't, but he won't surely fix this, use me, uh, work in so-and-so's life. I want to suggest that our tendency to think along those lines is probably because, and wait, well, hang in there with me on this, it's probably because we have a failure in three areas. And if we're going to grow as Christians, as women, as wives and daughters and friends, mothers, then we must address if we are failing in any one of those three areas. So here they are. Number one, a failure of imagination. A failure of imagination. I can't imagine X, fill in the blank. Can't imagine. Failure of imagination. 
Number two, a failure of faith. A failure of faith. I can't believe for this. I don't have faith for that. A failure of imagination or a failure of faith. And the third, I believe, is actually the simplest area to correct. Lack of imagination is challenging to correct, especially for those who tend to be left brain, fact-oriented people. You might even dismiss the need for imagination if you're the kind of person who says, I'm just not that creative. I don't think like that. Lack of faith, lack of faith by believing is also a challenge and can feel like we're just faking it. Faking it till we make it, right? We might even question, is this just wishful thinking, this whole faith, religion thing? The third is a foundational reason why I write the way I write, I teach the way I teach. It's the central focus of every Bible study, no matter if we've been in Genesis, Romans, Acts, Ruth, Esther, all of the studies. Whether we're learning big doctrinal ideas or following the lives of women and men who've gone before us. The third failure, number three, is a failure to know God. We assume things about God. We've heard about God. We think we know. But really knowing and having a relationship with God that is anchored in truth, truth that's revealed in his word by him about himself is the single most important thing to be able to mature in our faith and to actually have a bigger imagination and to share the belief persuasively, our faith and have faith. But when we miss the point about who God is, we miss out on imagination as well as faith. When our view of God is skewed, everything else from that point forward is off. And it might be off just by a little, or it might be off, you know, like starting your own cult off, right? But it's skewed, isn't it? And it's no wonder we have these impotent, feelings-based, woke, country club-style churches. People don't want to hear about God, turns out. They want to hear about themselves. But knowing God is as simple as, well, introducing yourself to him. Who are you? Growing mature in our faith, being made set apart for God is a lifelong process. And the theological word for this in the Christian life is called sanctification. Being sanctified is interesting because it's something that happens in an instant. The moment God chooses us, we become a Christian. And it's also a process because being mature doesn't just happen, does it? Being holy isn't only instantaneous. Remember at Babel, 
God disinherited the nations. Do you remember that account? He's no longer working in a global sense. Instead, he moved in on one life, a lifeline, actually, a line that would lead ultimately to my savior, to your savior, yours, yours, all of our savior. And that move began in the life of a pagan, idol-worshiping man named Abram. And our study has brought us through his life, the life of his son Isaac, and now to Jacob. And there have been other sons, other men, and even other women that have been part of the story, but it's through the lifeline God chose after Babel, Abraham's line, that what was lost will be found once and for all. And um, we studied the life of Jacob. We've seen that long, slow process that God has used to transform a selfish, deceitful, manipulative, sounds like I'm describing myself, person, <laughs> into a man who lives by faith, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> And we've seen that Jacob's sanctification, his set-apartedness, his being made holy to God is done and not done, right? Just like me, just like you. And in Genesis 34, we saw how far short Jacob still falls from the virtues of godly courage, righteous zeal, loving compassion. He comes off as indifferent and slow to respond when his own daughter was raped. He's willing to enter a relationship, an arrangement with pagan men. Jacob has come a long way, both geographically and spiritually, but God's gotta bring Jacob a little farther to Bethel in order to bring Jacob a little farther in his sanctification. And in Genesis 35, God fulfills his promise at Bethel back from Genesis 28. God re-renames <laughs> Jacob as Israel. And Jacob gets the answer to the question that he asked back in his Cobra Kai wrestling match with God. <laughs> Remember that after being renamed Israel, he asks, please tell me your name. Hmm? And God answers, by only asking, why do you ask? Doesn't get an answer to that. Instead of revealing his name, God blesses him. Jacob successfully then reconciles with Esau, buys land north of what will become the capital of Israel, Jerusalem, and he names the place El Elohe Israel. God is the God of me of Israel, right? And God is bringing Jacob's story to a climax and a resolution. In part, God's demonstrating this absolute faithfulness to Jacob. More than that, God's finalizing his work with Jacob in order to continue his mission for the next generation after Jacob. God's blessings toward Jacob have not been because of Jacob and his merit. They weren't because of Abram when he got called. They weren't because of Isaac. It wasn't because of anything good Jacob did. God chose, right? But what we see also is those blessings haven't been for only Jacob's exclusive benefit. Everybody else in his life 
gets blessed. And what we need to see is the lifeline that God's been working toward blessing the whole world through Jacob's offspring. Genesis 35. Many storylines from Jacob's life come to their conclusion precisely so that the next part of God's mission in the world can move forward. And here we see that God decreases Jacob, the man, in order to increase Israel, the nation. So God blesses and renames Jacob again. <laughs> Genesis 35, God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there, make an altar there to who? To the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Think of every moment, any moment that God could have chosen to the God that appeared to you on the ladder, to the God that did the Cobra Kai wrestling match with you. Nope, to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother. That's what he's bringing back to his mind. That is what he's thinking about. And that's what he's causing Jacob to anchor in on. Oh yeah, that's gonna be important in a minute. If you haven't already, highlight that in your Bible. All right, so who is the God who appeared to you when you fled Esau? What is Jacob thinking? What goes into his head then? Well, he's the God that wrestles. <laughs> he's the God that renames. He's the God that gave me this lump. <laughs> the God who met him at Jabok and Jacob renamed that area Penuel. The God who wounded him. The God who was gracious. The God who prepared the heart of Esau. And the God, El Elohe Israel. Oh, yeah. That God. Listen. He's not a God to be trifled with. He's not the God of the teraphim, the little gods, right? And without being specifically asked, only, only what we have from God is, go up, arise, dwell there, make an altar to the God who appeared to you. In verse two, Jacob said to his household and all who are with him, the very next thing he says, put away the foreign gods. God's watching. <laughs> <laughs> Capital G, Elohim. Put away the gods. Put away those teraphim. And to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to, and what does he say? The God who answers me in the day of my distress. Pause. <laughs> Stop. Listen. The day of my distress... What has been the source, the cause, the impotence of Jacob's distress at every turn? Jacob. <laughs> Jacob has caused all of his problems. Jacob did. Now, a little side note on Laban. Okay, we can give him that. But every other issue that he has faced and tried to run away from or work on, it's all Jacob all day, right? The God who answers me in the day of me being a knucklehead. That's the light, you know, J and B, Jennifer version. But listen what he says. And has been with me wherever I have gone. And man, I have gone on. I've gone. And he's been with me. Those little gods, get, that's, we're done. Lowercase g, teraphim. So they gave all to Jacob, all the foreign gods they had. The rings that were in the ears would have been a, a representative of those foreign gods. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as he journeyed, a terror fell upon the cities that were around them, so they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Why? 
Why does the author take the time to tell you that they hid him under a terebinth tree that was near Shechem? What had happened near Shechem? Simeon and Levi slaughtered a bunch of people there. <laughs> so their journey, and that is thought of, and so maybe the, all the rest of the people in that area are thinking, oh, let's go get these, this, just a, a bunch of women and children and these men. We can, we can take them now, but God calls us a terror. Like, do not have retribution, and God protects them. Terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. In other words, the alternative was pursue them, because these are the guys who slaughtered all the Shechemites, right? So Jacob comes to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who are with him. And here he builds an altar called the place El Bethel, house of God, because their God had revealed himself to him when, what? He fled from his brother. There's that repeated phrase. Verse nine, God appeared to Jacob again, he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob. Isn't that an odd way of saying it? He's already renamed him Israel. Why is he saying your name is Jacob? No longer shall you be called Jacob. He's making the point to Jacob himself. I've got bigger plans. See, Jacob struggles like we do with a lack of imagination. Jacob struggles like we do with a lack of faith. And Jacob struggles like we do with a lack of knowledge of who God is. And this is what God is trying to point out to him right here. So he called his name Israel. So God Almighty, El Shaddai, restates the covenant promise of the land and the offspring that he gave to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob marks off that place with this pillar, all right? And um, this is important because this is the answer to the, the question. Because remember, Jacob doesn't get that question answered back at the Cobra Kai wrestling match, right? Who are you? Tell me your name, please. He doesn't get an answer. But now we know, and Jacob knows, God Almighty, it's El Shaddai, right? So we move forward and we get this um, little sad moment here. The death of, of Rachel and the death of Isaac is going to happen in a moment as well. And as they're journeying from Bethel, uh, there's some distance from Ephrath, which is near Bethlehem. Uh, Rachel goes into labor. She has hard labor. And, it, you know, she ends up dying, giving birth to Jacob, uh, Benjamin. Jacob sets up a pillar there. And in Jewish tradition, interestingly, Jacob's sons each lay a stone on the pillar. That's not recorded in the Bible, but the Midrash it's called, which is the oldest commentaries on the Old Testament. Um, they teach that Jacob's sons each would have taken a stone on the pillar. And um, Joseph would have been about eight. Some say seven, some say nine. The commentary is the Jewish one, so I just rounded it to eight. So Joseph's probably about eight years old when his mother dies. Um, and her tomb's still there today, just north of Bethlehem. And um, you can go there and pray today. It's still there all these years later, 35 you know, centuries or whatever it is later. So she goes into this terrible, hard labor, and uh, she gives birth, and um, we've got this whole name-switching thing. She names it out of her grief, and he gets renamed by Jacob, son of my right hand. Jacob becomes, comes then to his father, Isaac, at Mamre, at Kiriath Arba, that's Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had um, sojourn. And um, Isaac dies. And so the days, days of Isaac, and we haven't heard from Isaac in a while, and all we hear now is that he's, he's died. Um, and he's, uh, remember, he's about 13 years younger than Ishmael. Just keep that kind of rattling around in your brain as we move forward when Ishmaelites come up in a second. So Isaac breathed his last, died, gathered to his people, full of days. Sons Esau and Jacob buried him there. So Esau and Jacob, a little reunion at dad's graveside. It's kind of sweet. 
Um, then we go to this Toledot of Esau's descendants. And these are the generations, chapter 36, verse 1. Um, and this Toledot goes out of its way to remind us that Esau is Edom. And we see that over and over and over again throughout this whole chapter. And we see also the author, Moses, uh, reminding us that um, Esau takes wives from the Canaanites. And he's just no good. He is very earthly-minded. He's also part of the covenant because he's part of Abraham's family. But his covenant blessings appear in very materialistic ways. He actually gets land in Seir, and we are told very, very clearly um, that Jacob continues as a sojourner and not in his own land. He's in Canaan. Esau has his land. It's like Esau gets his payoff now, but that was his entire life. He wanted his payoff now. He wanted the stew, birthright, schmirthright, all that. So Genesis 36 tells us that Esau can't really be summarized as a story of God's total rejection because Esau, God does exile Esau away from the land of Canaan and all that and because he wants Jacob to get established there and not have that family feud continuing. But we also see that God blesses Esau. He's got a lot of kings that come from him, land he gets, Esau. He's a son of Isaac. He's part of the covenant promise. Um, but the passage sets up this bigger story of Esau's descendants. Um, this nation of Edom comes up a lot in the scriptures. And um, just remember, though, that Esau has his reward because it's earthly. That's where his mind has always been, and that's what his reward ends up being. So in contrast with Esau, who's living in Seir, first chapter 37, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. So from the Toledot of Esau, we get to chapter 37 and verse 2, these are the generations of Jacob, or this is the Toledot of Jacob, which interestingly is the Toledot of Jacob focuses on his sons, really, mostly Joseph, right? So as we're moving through now these passages, I want you to think of these three areas of imagination, faith, and knowing God, and what that looks like in Joseph's lives, in the lives of some of the key brothers, Judah and Reuben, and uh, what, what ends up happening as a result of those three those three things I'm asking you to think about. So Joseph, 17 years old, he's pastoring the flock with his brothers. He brings a bad report to them and their father. This kind of sets the stage of what's going on. And um, so we get this bad report or evil report. Some of your Bible translations might say either way. It doesn't matter. It's the point is something's up with the brothers and Joseph's reporting about it to dad. Um, Israel loves Joseph more than any other of his sons. So we have favoritism there that's not appropriate. And um, he was the son of his old age. Of course, he has a tender spot because Rachel's dead. And he's sad. And he's pouring all of his time into, in his love into Joseph. And he makes him this robe of many colors. And uh, when the brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they're, they're really hurt. And sometimes people express hurt in anger and hate. Sometimes people get hurt and they withdraw and they're sad. Sometimes people express hurt in um, self-destructive ways, but they hate him and their focus is on him. Um, you're going to see a lot of lack of imagination and faith in their life as we move forward. But interestingly, um, they lack the ability to even speak a word of peace. They can't shalom. There's no shalom with them. Their hate is all-consuming and it's defining how they're gonna engage with him. So verse five, Joseph has a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. So he, he's like his dad. Jacob had dreams. Now Joseph's having dreams, and it skips past Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, 
Gad, Asher, Nephtali, all those guys all the way down, and Joseph gets the, the dream gift. Jacob engaged with God with dreams. Boom, skips everybody else, lands on Joseph. You don't think Joseph's brothers have heard the latter story a hundred times? <laughs> you don't think he's heard about the Cobra Kai wrestling match a hundred times? You don't think dad's walking around telling, remember that time? We've heard it, dad. And now Joseph, right? He's got the dream. So they have a failure of faith. They don't have faith. They have a failure of imagination. They can't imagine anything good coming out of Joseph. And he says to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. And he goes on and describes his dream with the sheaves bowing and all that. And the brothers are, they say to him, are you indeed to reign over us or are you indeed to rule over us? Now I read it as, as best as I could in, the, in a voice that was toneless because I, I want you to think about that. Are you indeed to reign over us? How cool will that be? Totally different. Then, are you indeed to reign over us? Like, right. Are you indeed to rule over us? Rather than enthusiasm, excitement, and wow, you've got this special gift. Clearly, God answers dreams, and he's done it with dad, and he's going to do it with you. What? You're going to rule over us? That's going to be amazing because you're just a kid. What's going to happen? Failure of imagination and faith. A lack of understanding of who God is. Had they had any of those three, maybe they would have said, oh, wow, Joseph's got the dream gift. Dad had it. All worked out for dad. It's working. What? This is going to be amazing. No. Second half of verse 8. They hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. So he just tells them what the dream is. And then he's describing it and talking in the bad report and all these things probably are coming up. And rather than repenting and turning, they hate him even more. He has another dream, verse 10. He tells it to his father and to his brothers. His father rebukes him and says, what is this dream that you've dreamed? Like, this isn't, what? I'm the one with the dreams, right? And shall I and your mother, now when he says your mother, obviously Rachel's dead at this time, but your mother is a euphemistic speaking of like in that sense of all that we have. He has basically three other mothers, um, but he's using that in a familial sense there. And your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you. And his brothers were jealous of him. Now, what hap what's happening when you're jealous? When you're jealous, somebody has something that what you want. They're, they don't just hate him. They, they want that. Like, I want that. Again, lack of imagination, lack of faith, lack of knowledge of who God is. But his father kept the saying in mind. He's like, ooh, God did work with me on dreams. What? This is going to, something's up here. So that's that. We leave it there. His brothers go to a pasture with their father's flock near Shechem. Here's Shechem coming up again. Israel says to Joseph, um, aren't your brothers up there at Shechem? Um, come, I'm going to send you to them. And we get this Hanemi moment with Jacob. Pay attention to Nemi moments, and Nemi moments. And he says, here I am, and that's it. Here I am, and I'm gone. You're not going to see me anymore. He sends him off. He ends up in Dotham, and the brothers see him. They conspire to kill him, and they say, we'll see what become of his dreams. Well, guess what? Turns out you will. <laughs> You're going to see what becomes of his dreams, right? And so, I mean, they can say it sarcastically. They can say it dreamily we'll see what becomes of his dreams huh again failure of imagination failure of faith failure of knowledge of god 
But when Reuben heard it, remember he's the firstborn, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let's not take his life. Reuben says, don't shed blood. Just throw him in the pit in the wilderness and don't lay a hand on him. Let nature take its course. And I just toss him in this pit. If he dies, he dies type of thing. But he has a plan. He's going to rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. This is really noble. This is good. Good job, Reuben. Such a loving moment. Now listen, ladies, listen. Why didn't God let Reuben's plan succeed? That's a really sweet thing to do. This is a big brother, very protective, very loving, and wanted to do right by his dad. God's not letting him succeed. Think about your own life. You're doing the right thing. You're trying your best. You're doing right by other people in your life, and you're being thwarted? What's up, God? Now go to God. Failure of imagination? Lack of faith? Not understanding who God is? Why didn't God let Reuben succeed right then and there? Well, you know the end of the story. You know he's got to get Joseph to Egypt. So Reuben's like, what? So Joseph comes to his brothers. They strip him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they make this really emphasized in the narrative about this coat. And they took him. They throw him into a pit. The pit's empty. In other words, not enough water to soften his blow. It's like, boom, he just hits hard. And um, they just sit down to eat. <laughs> what a bunch of jerks. <laughs> he's down in this pit screaming and crying if he's not unconscious and they're just chomp, chomp, chomping on their hummus and pita who knows you know? so they look up they see their cousins the Ishmaelites are coming why how do, you, how do they know because they all have this dress just like the clans do oh. Ireland and Scotland and all that they could tell by the dress to this day you could tell in the Middle East just by their outfits yards and yards away who the Muslims are, who the Jews are, by the way they walk and how they dress. And the same exact thing is happening. They see them coming off, and they're coming from Gilead, where we hear later on, by the way, there's a bomb in Gilead. Make note of this, because it's going to play into your food feast, and it's going to come up in Lesson 11, carrying gum, bomb, and myrrh. And that's not hubba bubba, it's a different type of gum. <laughs> and um, they, they're on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And uh, so Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? What a jerk. What a absolute tinker. Come, let us sell him to the Israelites. Let's sell him to our cousins. And uh, so our hands won't be upon him, for he's our brother, our own flesh. Okay, <laughs> Judah, okay. And the brothers listen to him. Why? Because he's the next oldest. He's in, in that old, you know, the older category up there. So evil, so twisted, so self-centered. Why didn't God stop his plan? Why didn't God let Reuben's plan succeed? Why doesn't he stop Judah's plan? How many times have you asked yourself those types of questions in your own life? When it, when it relates to something going on in your family, when it relates to something going on at work, when you relate to somebody you're, you're seeing in your life, why is God, what is, how, how? So the Midianite traders passed by, more family, and they drew Joseph up, and they lifted him out of the pit, and they sold him to the Ishmaelites. Are you seeing what's happening here? The entire family descended from Abraham is involved in betraying the only one who's going to end up saving them all. Every family member, the entire genetic, the whole gene pool, is involved 
in betraying Joseph, the one who's going to end up saving them all. Does this story sound familiar to you at all in the Bible? They drew Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Huh, that's an interesting reference and a very specific number of money. And they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit, saw Joseph was gone. He's super upset. The boy is gone. Where? And I, where shall I go? He says. And um, they, he doesn't get an answer to his question at all. They took Joseph's robe. They slaughter a goat. And I want you to start noticing every time the robe and the goat are mentioned, you're going to see coats and goats over and over and over <laughs> in this story. They're going to come up again, coats and goats. And they dipped the robe in the blood, and they sent the robe of many colors, brought to their father, as we found, identified your sons as if he didn't know. And the, the dad fills in the blanks, the story, fierce animal, he tears his garments, he refuses to be comforted. I'm going to go down to Sheol to my son mourning. In other words, my son's gone, I'm going to be gone, I'll never be comforted after this. And his father whips for him, weeps for him. Meanwhile, the Midianite sells him to Egypt, to Potiphar, officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard. And we pause in this story, verse 36, and all of a sudden we're shifting an entire gear over to chapter 38. And we're like, what? Why aren't we just, I just want to keep on going with the whole Joseph thing. What's happening? Why would God cause Moses to put in this chapter 38 in the middle of the story? There's a reason. We talked about this at the very beginning of our Genesis study. There is no word out of place, there's no chapter out of place. This story of Judah and Tamar is essential to understanding and seeing the growth of imagination and faith and knowledge of God. Judah has some learning to do. He's going to be really essential in the story moving forward, and we've got to get Judah's story to understand him better. It happened at that time, Judah went down. Who else has just recently gone down? His brother, Joseph. Joseph's going down as a captive. Judah goes down as a free man. He turns aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hirah. Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her, went in, conceived, bore a son. He calls his name Ur. Interesting on the word Ur. Um, in Hebrew, it, um, when it's read um, reversed, it means evil. It's to say, it actually is the word evil. And so we, we, we're meant to see this in the Hebrew because the author is deliberately doing a play on the word. Like we're, we're never told what evil he does, but he's evil. He's, he's reversed against God is, is the point. And when you see it in the Hebrew, you get that point very much so. So what Judah does here is that he ignores the promise. He ignores the command of God, that heavenly promise. He lives faithlessly. He's not supposed to be there. It's kind of like Simeon and Levi and Shechem and the whole thing, the raping of Dinah. They were not supposed to be there anyway. And trouble, trouble, trouble happens when you are where you're not supposed to be. He doesn't live by faith. He pursues an earthly Canaanite woman, a woman in the land, kind of like Esau. He lives by what he can see but he doesn't see rightly. And the idea of seeing and seeing incorrectly is gonna play strongly in the next few verses. So this woman, this Canaanite, we don't get her name, she conceives again, bears a son, Onan, uh, bears another son, Shelah, and Judah's an absent dad. He's not even there for the birth of his son. He's in Chezib when she bore him. Chezib means deceit, by the way. And Judah took a wife from, for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was, now we get a name, Tamar. We assume she's Canaanite. We don't get an identity on her, but we just assume she probably is. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked, evil. Lord puts him to death. 
Judah says to Onan, go to your brother's wife, perform your duty of a brother-in-law. This is called a Leverite marriage. It, it plays strongly in the story of Ruth. The entire book of Ruth is based on this whole Leverite marriage concept. And um, this is a, a law of the land. We, the, the older brother dies, the next one up, not married, he needs to take care of this wife. And he knows the, the deal. He, and there was a, a place for him to back out of it and say, nope, I can't do it. Because that's, we see that in the book of Ruth. The other guy was supposed to take on uh, as the kinsman redeemer and Ruth ends up, yay, going over to Boaz. And the whole thing goes on from there. Right? So Onan, not honorable, he um, doesn't take care of his duties, but he takes her. So he gets the benefit of, of her and relations with her, but he won't take the responsibility because he spills his seed. So he completely uses Tamar, all right? He wasn't honorable. He got what he wanted, but not what was best for her. So what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and God puts him to death. Well, now she's a black widow. Everyone who comes near her is going to die. It doesn't remind you of the story that the Pharisees bring to Jesus later on. A certain man marries this uh, woman, marries a man, and he dies, and marries the brother, and he dies, and who's the who's the husband in heaven, right? That's this whole love right marriage, whole concept right here. And we're seeing it right here. And anyone hearing that story is like, wow, that lady makes all the guys die, right? <laughs> and so the same thing's happening here. And so Judah's getting nervous about his last kid, mm-hmm. Sheila. Oh, remain a widow in your father's house till my son Sheila grows up, for he feared that he would die, like his brothers. <laughs> so um, he um, tells her to stay in, the, in her father's house. All right, so she's honorable. She does it. Of course, at time, wife of Judah, she was daughter, dies. Judah doesn't have a wife anymore. So he's tired of mourning. He's not going to mourn anymore. He goes up to Timnah to a sheep shearer's. What have we learned about sheep shearing parties? Exactly that. It's a big party. So he goes out to the party. And he and his friend Hiram, the Adulamite, and the Tamar was told, oh, your father is partying, sharing the sheep now. She's like, you have got to be kidding me. I've been waiting around. This kid's not even 13 yet. I can't take him. And it's really icky and weird to all of us. But that's just how it worked back then. She just needs an heir. She needs an heir. She's going to be destitute, out with nothing. And he's not doing right by her. So she takes off her widow's garments, covers herself with a veil, wraps herself up, sits at the entrance to Enaim. Enaim means eyes seeing and it's on the road to Timnah so Tamar does this at the entrance to Enaim the word Enaim eyes and entrance it can be translated as opening so Tamar is sitting at the opening of the eyes when Judah sees her verse 15 and mistakenly believes her to be a prostitute and again Tamar does this because she saw that Judah did not intend to give her to Sheila as a wife Tamar's eyes are wide open to the situation. Judah sees Tamar at the entrance to Enaim's eyes, but his eyes are blind to what's happening. Maybe it's significant that the Lord put both Ur and Onan to death because they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. For she saw that Sheila was grown up. She'd not been given into marriage. Judah sees her, thinks she's a prostitute, and, and they make this arrangement. And we see goats and cloaks again involved in the whole scenario. He says, I'll send you a young goat from the flock, give you a pledge, uh, what pledge you give, uh, the signet and your cord, which would have been the cord around his cloak, and your staff that's in your hand. So he came to her, went to her, she conceives, she arose, and she put the garments of her widowhood back on. Three months later, Tamar is pregnant. What? Get her out here. How dare she be pregnant? And he had the right to have her stoned, but he jumps over stoning and he goes all the way up to burn her. This is brutal. 
This is a man filled with hypocrisy. This is a man not unlike his distant, soon-to-be-born, but not yet, David. Because David himself was caught in adultery. And David himself was like, what? How dare someone do that when Nathan the prophet confronts him? And so Judah is, this is a family trait, obviously. And uh, bring her out. She's going to get burned. And she's like, oh, really? I don't think so. Brings out all the stuff, the signet, the cord, the staff. Judah goes, whoa. And what does he say? His eyes are open finally. She's more righteous than I. And she was. She was the one that waited faithfully the entire time. And if she's Canaanite, which likely she is, she's more righteous than him. That would have burned because he's one of God's chosen people. And I didn't give her my son, Sheila. I didn't do what I was supposed to do. So the twins come out, and the, the lady who's helping, the midwife, takes her, um, puts a scalp thread around the one guy, Zira, but Perez is the one who comes out, and a secondborn. And again, we have a secondborn who's triumphing because later in Jesus' genealogy, Perez is the one who is um, in Jesus' line. And it comes from this illicit relationship between Judah and Tamar. Mm-hmm. Chapter 39 continues, and we have more goats. We have more coats, actually, I should say, um, involved. And we see now the Lord appears, and he's with, 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 with Joseph, right? He's brought down with his cousins, Ishmaelites, who brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, verse 2. Verse 3, the Lord was with him. The Lord caused all he did to succeed. Okay, stop. That's all well and good, but why now? Why didn't God cause all he did to succeed back at home? with his dad and his brothers. He's now he's succeeding. Everything is in God's time. Joseph finds favor, not favoritism, but actual favor in the sight of uh, Potiphar and attended to Potiphar. He gets to be overseer of the house and the Lord blesses him. And the Egyptian's house was blessed for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had. God is touching this guy's life because he needs to accomplish something super big that no one can imagine. Mm-hmm. No one can believe. No one could even possibly fathom what's going to be coming. So he left all he had with Joseph. Because of him, he had no concern over anything. And then we get this little interesting note about Joseph. We didn't know anything about what he looked like. All of a sudden, oh, verse 6, he's handsome in form and appearance. Well, look at that. He's quite a catch. And the master's wife kind of notices him. And um, he's like, no, my master has no concern about anything in the house, which was already said in verse 6. And he gets it repeated in verse 8. And verse 9, how can I do a great wickedness and sin? Perfectly fine to end the sentence there. Mm -hmm. How could I do a great wickedness? How could I sin against God? Mm -hmm. You know, you, you could do the same thing in your life. How could I do this or how could I not? It doesn't matter. But when you stop right there, you miss the opportunity to make sure your witness is out there. And you, by adding against God, are putting a nugget in their life and in their heart and in their mind and getting them to think and chew on something against God. Why? Because Jacob has the right imagination, the right faith, and the right understanding of who God is. And Jacob's the one who's getting, well, messed up the entire time. You would think he'd be the one shaking his fist. You'd be thinking he'd be the one, I can't believe I'm here. No imagination. I'm giving up. No faith. God causes all things to work together for the good. Where's my name and where's my claimant? I want to live my best life now. Right? You don't know God if you act like that and live like that. So uh, she speaks to Joseph day after day. He's not listening to her. And uh, she wants him to lie beside her to be with her. 
we see the stark contrast between the Judah Tamar story and the Joseph and Potiphar's wife story, paralleling this whole thing. One day, she's ready, and here comes the garment. The, the coat is coming up, verse 12. She caught him by his garment, his, his coat, lie with me. But he leaves the garment in her hand and flees. And interesting note about Potiphar when he finds out. Um, she throws him under the bridge, and he's a Hebrew, and oh, you know, makes it all about him and who his race is and how awful he is. You know, when he was pretty hot a minute ago, but now he's just a dirty Hebrew, right? Verse twenty, verse nineteen. Um, Potiphar says his anger was. It says about Potiphar his anger was kindled, but notice it doesn't say it was kindled against the wife. It doesn't say again against Joseph either. So it's left for us to go. He's he's upset. And he probably is going to do Joseph a solid and actually keep him in the close, good prison, the one that's made for the king's prisoners. So it's not the dirty, awful, horrible Hebrew dungeon, but it's this good one. And that's God's favor again right there. His anger is kindled. Verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph. And here's what's so beautiful. Ah, so beautiful. And showed him chesed. There's chesed again. Showed him steadfast love and favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. <laughs> He's in the lowest place possible, the lowest guy in the totem pole, and he gets favor in front of this guy. Keeper of the prison puts him in charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made him succeed. So now we get another parallel of dreams. Remember, Joseph had two dreams originally, mm -hmm. and Joseph doesn't get an interpretation at the end of that. He just says the dreams. And everybody's like, that can't be right. No imagination, no faith, no understanding of God. And now we, we had two dreams that started us, and now we have two more dreams. And we're going to get, you're going to, in your next lesson coming up, you're going to get even two more. Sometime after this, cupbearer the king of Egypt, baker, committed an offense against the lord, the king of Egypt. And um, they're in prison then. And one night, they both dream. These guys both have this dream. And Joseph's so sweet. He's so tender. He sees how sad they are and troubled they are. And he goes to them and says, why are you downcast? You're just a bunch of jerks in prison. Who, why, why should he care? But he's tender. So he's not just some good-looking guy. He's actually, honestly, he's a catch. He's a, a nice guy, and he cares about people. Why are you down? But see, that's what the Holy Spirit transformation does in the life of a person who gives their imagination and their faith and their understanding to God. God just really does an entire work. Why are you sad, he says. And they say, well, we had these dreams. There's no one to interpret them. We don't know if it was bad hummus or not, but we just can't sleep anymore. And Joseph says, don't interpretations belong to God? Again, what is he doing? Boom. Redirecting everybody in his life to God. Crazy Potiphar's wife, God. These people he doesn't know who apparently did something bad to the king. Who knows what they're about? And he's just wanting them right to God? Tell them to me. That chutzpah. Right there. You tell me your dreams? Because he just said, don't interpretations belong to God. And now he's saying, tell them to me. Like, wow, he's basically setting himself up to say, I'm connected with God. So, Cupbearer tells him his dream. And he's like, all right, that's pretty cool. And with grapes and all this. And you're going to get lifted up and back and restored to your office. And then Joseph gives him this verse 14. Only remember me when it's well with you. That's such confidence in this interpretation. Remember me, it's going to happen the way I said. Please do this kindness, this chesed to me, to Pharaoh, and get me out of this house. And this is the only time in the story we get any insight into Jacob, uh, Joseph's mindset. I was stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. 
And here I've done nothing. I've been basically stolen again out of Potiphar's house. I've done nothing that they should put me into a pit twice. I was put into a pit by my brothers and I was put into a pit now here. So this is the only thing we get from him. And the chief baker sees that the interpretation was favorable and he's like, ooh, ooh, do me. You know, <laughs> that was a good one. I like, Let me hear mine. And then, of course it's not. Um, the cupbearer is going to have his head returned to him uh, up with Pharaoh and your head is going to be severed from you. He's going to lift your head up off him from you and hang you on a tree and the birds are going to eat your flesh. And he's like, oh, I hope my dream doesn't come true. <laughs> I hope this Jacob is not, doesn't know what he's talking about. But of course, Pharaoh has a birthday party and the big reveal and um, cupbearer goes back to his position and he hangs or impales uh, the baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. What? That's awesome. Everything's going to turn out okay, but it's not. Verse 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. Again, full stop right there would have been enough, but just, just pushed it in the dagger a little harder, but forgot him. He didn't remember to forget. <laughs> so we get this point of the story here, and we've got Joseph not realizing that he's been forgotten, not realizing. He, this is such good news. How in the world could it possibly be that the cupbearer is not going to remember him? And yet he doesn't. And we're going to find out in the next lesson. It's going to be for not just a couple of days, but it's going to be a couple of years. But listen, three things. God has a precise purpose and a reason for putting us who follow him in challenging circumstances. And you know that. In God's timing, he reveals his purposes. But here's the deal on that. <laughs> we don't know God's timing because this side of heaven, it might not happen. Oh. Right? <laughs> Too bad. Don't shoot the messenger. God's omniscient, number two. God knows the future that he has decreed. And many times in the Bible, God reveals the future. Biblical prophecy, that's a fourth of the Bible is just flat out prophecy. Number three, God's never gonna forsake his children, but you're gonna feel forsaken at some point in your life. You should feel forsaken. You, you will all have a Calgon take me away moment where you're like, this has gotta stop. It makes you feel forsaken. If you don't, then you're not awake. You're not paying attention. <laughs> God's not going to forsake his children when they're experiencing trials. So I want you to leave here keying in on where you need to ask God to help. Are you suffering from that failure of imagination, from a failure of your faith, or a failure of really knowing God? And go to him. God, I know I know you've got bigger plans than I could possibly imagine. 1 Corinthians 2.9, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no one's heart has imagined all the things that God has prepared for those who live perfectly and never sin or blow it an entire day. Or a few, no, for those who love him. You, you, you just keep working on that. Say, God, I want to know you, and your imagination is going to increase, and your ability to strengthen your faith is going to increase as well along with it. But know God. Make that your focus, as I've said so many times in our Bible study. And let the stories of Joseph's life and all this not, not leave us with, it's all going to work out in the end, because here's the problem with that type of thinking. It, 
didn't feel like that to Joseph in that moment. If you would have come down and said, it's all going to work out in the end, he would have been like, you stink. (laughs) This stinks. And we know the ending of the story, but it's not going to be in our timeline. Joseph didn't want to be in the pit. The problem is we have this desire to not actually be in the pit. But if we live good enough, better enough, strong enough, faithful enough, have the best imagination possible, live with the most faith possible, know all the answers about who God actually is, somehow we're not going to end up in a pit. But who was the hero of the story and where did he end up? The pit. Judah's out having sex with people, doing whatever he wants. Right? He's the one that looks like he's living it up. All the other brothers are living it up with their dad, frolicking with the sheep, having a good time. Joseph's the one who was doing it right. He was being the good Christian. He's the one in the pit. But he's the one that's going to end up saving literally the world, it'll say, as we get to that point. Literally, the world will be saved because of him. Are you willing to be in the pit? Are you? Are you willing to watch your children be in the pit? You think about what Jacob's dealing with right now. He thinks he's dead. Moms, grandmoms, are you willing? Because it might not be you in the pit. You might be the one just suffering out there, thinking your kid's dead. And God's actually working in their life. We have to have that kind of imagination, that kind of faith, and that willingness to actually know God and ask like Jacob did, what's your name? I know mine. What's your name? And then not get an answer for a while. And then God answers him, you are Israel and I am El Shaddai. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how great you are, how powerful you are, how loving, gracious, patient, full of kindness you are to us. Thank you for your word that constantly teaches us and help us, Lord, in the areas that we fail to have imagination and faith and understanding of who you are. Grow us together in this community to encourage one another as well. We give this now to your amazing, perfectly timed hands and providence. And in Jesus' name, we say, Alleluia. Amen. Amen.